Oliva is a certified mental performance consultant and mental health counselor. He's a member of the Sport Strata team, which utilizes the most recent innovations in sport and performance psychology to coach individuals and teams to reach their maximum potential. He specializes in training athletes and elite performers using evidence-based mental skills training. Ben is the mental performance coach for Fordham University and New York University Athletics. He has worked with the Baylor football program and other NCAA teams. Beyond athletics, Ben is a mental performance coach for the New York City Fire Department's Mental Performance Initiative and delivers leadership and mental performance workshops for business organizations across the country. Ben's experience includes working for the mental skills group of the Boston Red Sox and serving as an assistant coach at Williams College for the baseball and football programs, where he was also a two-sport varsity athlete. He received his master's degree in sport and performance counseling from Boston University and his undergraduate degree in psychology and astrophysics from Williams College. Ben serves as a human performance advisor for Leadership Under Fire. Ben, thanks so much for being here. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. That's some resume. (laughs) (laughs) You were a two-sport athlete in college. Did you have any idea then that you would become a mental conditioning coach? No, I didn't even know these this type of position really existed at the time. I was always really just a sports lover growing up. Uh, I played any kind of sport I could as often as I could. And so I always sort of knew that I wanted to be involved in sports my whole life. I was also a camp counselor for over a decade. So I think working with people and helping people grow has always been a part of what I knew I wanted to do. My mom was a psychologist or is a clinical psychologist in Los Angeles. So it it all kind of came together for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. You know, I, I didn't even know that I wanted to go into coaching. When I graduated from Williams, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Most of my friends had lined up internships and figured it all out beforehand, but I sort of slow played it. Mm -hmm. And the coach who recruited me at Williams, Mm -hmm. who was the offensive coordinator and head baseball coach at the time, called me and asked me if I wanted to come back to college to be the assistant coach. So that sounded pretty appealing to me at the time. So Mm -hmm. I went back, was the wide receivers coach for the football team, helped with the special teams coordinating and then coached infielders and pitchers for the baseball team. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to realize that, you know, coaching is fun, but it's actually pretty frustrating when you don't know how to help people get better. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be able to coach the technical side of the game, but it's a whole other thing when people are not performing as well as you know they can. Mm -hmm. And I found that I wasn't really able to help people with that, and so Mm -hmm. that's what really got me interested in sports psych, Went to BU, Mm -hmm. and then a couple lucky connections got me to the Red Sox mental skills team, and it's all gone from there pretty much. We're going to talk a lot about your mental skills coaching in this episode, but before we get into it, we have to dissect the fact that you studied astrophysics at Williams, (laughs) really? (laughs) Yeah, so whenever people read my background, that's always the first question I get. Astrophysics... Similar to sports psychology, it sort of was the end of a long path. I loved physics in high school. I had a teacher that I really loved. It really fits the way that my brain works. You know, let's do an experiment to figure this out. What does the data tell us? And then 
Sort of the way that I like to approach the world is just what are the big questions that we don't know the answers to? And so a lot of times people ask me, what's the connection between, you know, astrophysics and psychology? Mm -hmm. And I actually think there's a, there's a huge overlap in that one is looking outward mm -hmm. and like, where's our limit to our knowledge and what's the research tell us about that? And then mm -hmm. the other is looking inward, right? Mm -hmm. What's the limit to how much we know about how to be self-aware how people work, and what's the research tell us about that. So just sort of science applied in different ways. So That was just so neatly packaged. I so appreciate that. Thank you for that insight. It's, it's not the first time that people have asked me, astrophysics, what? <laughs> astrophysics and Well, you think one of these things is not like the other, but you really just bridge that gap. So that's pretty interesting. I'm excited for that book you're going to write <laughs> eventually. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> So in recent years, you've worked with Division I college athletes at programs as big as Baylor's football and smaller schools such as Fordham University in the Bronx. What are some of the mental and emotional challenges that top athletes navigate? Well, I think the challenges are very similar to the challenges that everybody navigates in that they set goals and then they have to go over the road bumps or the failures that that lead to actually achieving those goals. But the thing about top athletes or top performers is that it's not just yourself that you feel like you're failing, you're failing big communities or other people that are really important to you. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the added pressure that comes with a bunch of people watching you, people relying on you, and, and the expectations that are there mm -hmm. once you've had a lot of success. So it's, it's almost, uh, everything is amplified. Mm -hmm. But the challenges themselves, I don't think, are that different. It's really about metabolizing failure, moving on, getting back to focusing in ways that are helpful for you. Right. And in an era where mental conditioning programs are like strength and conditioning programs, in that so many pro sport teams and collegiate programs have one in place, what do you think distinguishes the great mental conditioning programs from the good? I think what distinguishes the great mental performance programs from the good ones is how integrated they are with the rest of the training that's going on. So if you have a mental conditioning coach and they come in and they do a workshop once a season and you never hear about it again the rest of the year, that's going to be effective for that week. It might be even effective for some student athletes or players on a longer scale. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to have an exceptional program, it's got to be uh, something that ta is talked about on a daily basis. It's The student-athletes might not even know mm -hmm. that much that there is a mental conditioning mm -hmm. aspect to this drill. But the coach is still talking about, okay, when, when you're in this moment, what's your self-talk here? Mm -hmm. right? you, you got to make sure that when you step out of the box, you're saying something to yourself that's helpful, that's going to reinforce your focus on... Uh, the ball on the next mm -hmm. pitch, on being there on the next pitch. And if the coaches and players all have a language around mental skills mm -hmm. that they use on a daily basis, I think that's where it starts to become really, really effective. So cohesion is a very important part of mental skills, coaching and conditioning. What are some of the misconceptions that people generally have about a mental skills coach or a mental conditioning program? I think the biggest misconception is that it's for problems, that it's the same thing as mental health counseling, mm -hmm. 
So I, like you said, I'm also a mental health counselor, and I think there's huge crossover between your mental health and how well you can perform. But I think there's a pretty important distinction to be made between mental health counseling, which is more reactive in terms of, okay, you have something that you're struggling with. You have a problem that you're coming with. Whereas mental skills coaching to me is much more of that proactive approach to getting better. Mm-hmm. It's for everyone. And actually, I think it's more for people with more pressure. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's most important for the people at the very top, the captains, the coaches, the people who are starting every day. Those are the people who I think the mental skills coaching is really designed to help most. And so it's more about the the like I guess when it's happening and what the goal of mental skills coaching really is. People don't have a good understanding of that a lot of the time. So mindfulness has become a big part of how high performers and operators train and recover. How has mindfulness been involved in your life and your work? So my advisor at Boston University, Amy Baltzell, is one of the lead researchers on mindfulness. So it's one of the ways that I came into this field. So Mm -hmm. it's at the foundation of my thinking about everything that is helpful from a mental skills perspective. So people define mindfulness in all different types of ways, right? But to me, it's about knowing what you're paying attention to in the present moment and doing it on purpose. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times what happens when people are under stress is that their attention wanders to things that are not helpful. Oftentimes, the, the idea of choking is that your attention flips. In other words, it changes from focusing on what you're doing to what you're thinking. And so you start to get in your own head. You start to do overthinking. And mindfulness is really the tool that you need in order to do anything from there. And so just like any other human being, for me, it's really important in terms of being able to come to work with a good attitude to be able to help the people that I'm talking to, to be able to do this podcast effectively, right? To take a breath, really focus on, okay, what what are the questions that I'm being asked? What do I really think? Take a breath, right? Just respond. Mm -hmm. You know, if my mind starts wandering to, oh, I can't, what are the, what are the awesome firefighters who are listening to this going to be thinking of, like, I'm just a mental skills coach. What are they going to think of? Why do they think I'm on here, right? My Mm -hmm. mind's not going to be able to focus on just actually giving effective answers. Well, you are pretty masterful at interviewing in the sense that you do a lot of work with motivational interviewing. So how does that inform your work? Mm, Motivational interviewing is a big part of the way that I approach the conversations that I have with athletes. And actually, somebody who's been on your podcast before, Dr. Jonathan Fader, and I work very close together at Sports Strata, and he just published a book called uh, Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sports. Um, That's a really good guidebook for people who want to learn more about that approach. Um, So motivational interviewing is essentially just a style of having a conversation. And it's also, I guess, an attitude in terms of where effective motivation comes from. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people mix up mental skills coaching and motivational speaking. Going back to your other question, that's Mm -hmm. another misconception. I don't think of my job as motivating others. I think of my job as helping them understand their own motivation. And so if you're not motivated to be great at whatever it is that you're doing, then we really have nothing to work on. I'm, I'm happy to have a nice conversation with you, but mm-hmm. 
I'm here to help people who want to be great at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I can, a lot of people don't ever have to answer that question of why am I doing this? You know, why is this important to me? And Mm -hmm. so motivational interviewing is really, it's that attitude of bringing the motivation out from other people rather than supplying it for them. And also, how do you do that? So you ask open-ended questions, you focus on what's going well for that person. It's it's really about bringing out strengths, bringing out their own motivation rather than being a deficit detector, right? Trying to figure out, oh, what are they doing wrong? I'm going to tell them that they need to try harder and all the things they're doing wrong, which again, a lot of sports coaches, that's how they were treated. And, and you see that a lot um, mm-hmm. from sort of the quote unquote old school coaches. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you've had experience with a coach at a high level who might like the idea of his players working directly with a mental skills coach, but that same coach might not be as receptive to working with a coach. Have you run into that? Yeah, all the time. All the time. I think a lot of coaches feel like they're supposed to have all the answers. And one of the hardest parts of saying, hey, I want to work with a mental skills coach is admitting that you can possibly get better. You are not as good as you could be. Now, if we zoom out from that idea, it is actually fundamental to being great at anything. This idea that uh, I think I heard Hannah Huseman talk about this a little bit, that we can all always get better. Mm -hmm. And that to believe that you have reached your full potential is inevitably a false belief. And so usually talking to coaches, they'll open up to it over time. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of coaches feel a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. to, you know, I want to come across as the expert Mm -hmm. and you have to listen to me. And if I admit that I've done that, I don't know something or that I could get better. That's sort of a sign of weakness in some ways. Turns out that the evidence says the best leaders are the ones who actually do that. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a it's not really based in in science at all, to mm-hmm. think that I need to be I need to be perfect to be a great leader. But there is a lot of pressure on these coaches, especially at a high level. And the, the other thing that's really hard, I think, is that coaches or elite coaches need to figure out what to spend their time on. Mm-hmm. And they have too much to do with the amount of time that they have. So they have to be saying no to something else in order to make time for mental skills coaching. And I guess that's true for athletes, too, but it's especially true for coaches And so it's easy for them to say, I know this is important for these other people, but then for them to say, you know what, this is more important than doing some recruiting. This is more important than watching a little bit more film. It's harder to do that, I think. And so it's definitely a common thing. So for serious fans, it's generally pretty easy to read how a player is performing. How do you assess a coach's performance in an objective way? I think that depends a little bit on the level that you're at. So a youth sport coach is different than a high school sport coach, different than a college coach, and and so on. But in general, my feeling is that coaches are supposed to help players get better and teams get better. So if you compare how the team is coming together playing together, Mm -hmm. and performing from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, I think that's a pretty good way to look at Mm -hmm. how effective a coach is. I think you can also assess their messaging. Mm -hmm. How consistent is their messaging, and what are they telling their players? What kind of messaging are they doing? Are they saying things that are going to bring a growth mindset out of their players? Mm -hmm. Are they saying things that are going to help their players focus on process? Or are they 
emphasizing outcome and emphasizing talent Mm -hmm. rather than effort and process. That itself seems like a way of assessing the process and not being so outcome driven. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a meta question, right? (laughs) Let's bring it back for a second. (laughs) Hi, listeners. I want to take a moment to announce the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Course. The LDC consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The LUF advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, retired FDNY Lieutenant Danny Murphy of Rescue 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Early bird registration is available from February 1st through April 15th. Registration is limited to 18 leaders lodged on the farm and six lodged at nearby hotels, so act fast. For more information or to register, visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the events tab. Now, let's get back to the episode. Many of our listeners are parents of children who play competitive sport. What advice do you have for them? First, that sports specialization has gotten out of control and that there is very little evidence, unless your son or daughter wants to be a gymnast or a figure skater or one of these sports where the elite athletes emerge prior to puberty, it's really not much of an advantage, if at all, to specialize in sport earlier than, say, junior or senior year of high school. And so this push to specialize kids at age nine, maybe even younger, Mm -hmm. results in overuse injury, it results in burnout, it doesn't help kids be great. Now, whenever I say that, people point to examples in the pros uh, that they know, oh, you know, Tiger Woods, his dad pushed him to only play golf or something like that. Uh, Of course, it's possible that specializing early still results in being great, but at least from the evidence, the vast majority of athletes who reached that top level played multiple sports when they were young. Mm. So that's the biggest misconception I see. The other one, I guess, is is based on a sports psych theory, self-determination theory, where you want to help your kids feel, this goes back to some of your other questions, feel motivated on their own mm-hmm. and determined to make it on their own. You're never going to force your child to become great at something. You have to help them realize that they want to become great. And so what you're looking for is that you want to try to promote their autonomy. In other words, you want to be there for them when they want to do something and encourage them to do it if they want to do it, but not be forcing them to do it. You want to encourage their relatedness or their feeling of connection with the sport and with their teammates. So first of all, Again, autonomy, making sure it's fun, relatedness, making sure that they feel connected to the coaches, that they feel connected to their teammates. And then the last one is competence. So your job is to praise your child, to tell them the things they are doing well, to make them feel like they have done a good job and that you enjoy watching them play. By doing those things, you're going to help your kid feel like, okay, I can do this if I want to. And my parents are going to be there for me When I say I want to go do the travel team, they're going to say, yes, of course, we want you to do that. And 
they're going to be my biggest cheerleader even when I strike out to lose the game. They're not going to be pissed off that, you know, I didn't get that single to win the game at the end. You know, I'll tell parents that I think it's their job to be emotional role models. So a lot of parents will say, oh, well, I can't even go to the game. You know? Right. If I'm there, my kid's so nervous. Mm-hmm. My response is, yeah, it's because you're so nervous. Mm-hmm. Right? If you could just sit there and watch, your kid will calm down. They'll look over at you, and you'll be calm, mm-hmm. and then they'll feel calm. If they know you can't show up to the game, what kind of message is that sending to them? This is great advice. All challenging, though, to actually put into practice. Oh, yeah. You need some mental skills and you need some practice. Right. I'm, I'm not saying I could do any of this. <laughs> do as I say, exactly. not as I do. Exactly. <laughs> so you've been an active contributor to the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative, which is actually where we first met, and as well as the Milwaukee Fire Department's Human Performance Program. What are some of the human performance challenges for firefighters and EMS providers that you think are unique to tactical professions? And how do you think a mental conditioning program is helpful in addressing those challenges? I think the most unique aspect of it is that it's life and death situations that we're talking about. We're no longer talking about winning money or, or careers or pride you know, we're talking about human beings and, and life. And so the level of intensity, the level of fear that's involved or potentially involved in in these kind of situations is far more intense. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that just means that this kind of training, you know, the way Jason talks about the human factor only becomes more important because when things don't go well, uh, it's not just, oh, you, you're going to be sent down to the minor leagues or you're going to be benched. It's these people aren't going to live or you're going to lose your life. Mm-hmm. You know, on a less intense note, I think it's also that, at least with my experience working with the firefighters, there's not the same number of repetitions. You sort of have, you have less room for error. Mm-hmm. The, the expectation is more that you do it right every time. Mm-hmm. And if you mess something up, you have a long, long time to think about it. You know, baseball players say, oh, you know, I have to go to the outfield and wait two innings to get another at bat. You know, these firefighters were talking about days, months, years until you get another situation to do um, whatever it is that you made a mistake on. And so I think that ability to, to metabolize that failure without just getting another rep mm-hmm. is another thing that's really a big part of mental conditioning. And that's really important, at least in the firefighter realm. Yeah, that's a unique perspective. So also on a little bit of a lighter note, in recent years, it's become a common practice for athletes to have a walk-up song or even a short highlight video. My first job ever was actually working for a minor league baseball team, and I saw a lot of this. I've heard you and other members of the LUF team speak about the high value of a highlight reel, even if it's a virtual one. Can you tell me more about this trend and how and why it's used to prime the athlete as opposed to just being used for marketing or spectator entertainment, which I thoroughly enjoyed? Um, Sure. But before I do, I have to admit that, or I have to say that, my walk-up song in college was the Law & Order theme song. Why? (laughs) Um, For one, because it was hilarious. And I think looking back, it helped me feel more like, hey, this is a fun game 
time to play loose. You know, it got a lot of laughs and it, it always reminded me of my dad because we watched Law and Order growing up. And so it was sort of a way, you know, in hindsight, it was a way of messaging myself or reminding myself like, hey, you're out here to have some fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just go play. As opposed to, oh, okay, first at bat, this is so intense. All right, I need to get a hit. Mm -hmm. It's like, ha, 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 that was hilarious. All right, let's do this. Mm -hmm. So back to your question, though, why do I think this this is helpful for athletes and performers is that it builds confidence. Uh, The most common question that people come to me with is, how do I be more confident? Mm -hmm. And there's not really an easy answer to that question, in general, again, going back to sports psych theory, self-efficacy theory, the the biggest factor that gives you confidence is mastery experiences. In other words, doing something well in your past. So the best way to feel like I'm a good hitter is to have gotten a lot of hits. Right? But you can't be confident before you have success unless you use some of these other factors. The The other factors are vicarious experiences. In other words, watching somebody else who you think your skill level is about the same as be successful. Think highlight video. Now you're watching yourself be successful. That's going to give me more confidence. Another one is social persuasion or verbal persuasion, people telling you that you can do something. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody tells me, hey, I'm a great hit. Hey, you got this. You you can hit this guy. You hear that in dugouts all the time. Okay. Now I feel like, all right, I probably can hit this guy. And the last one, which I think plays into the music part of this, is physiological arousal, right? Fancy term that says, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, plays back to why the music comes mm-hmm. on and why you have walk-up songs and why the mm-hmm. Law & Order theme song worked for me. <laughs> I, I went from that, that mode of, oh, I'm so nervous, or mm-hmm. I, I got to, you know, that sort of flight mode into, ooh, this is fun, like, this, I'm going to do well here, and people want me to do well, and, and uh, you know, I'm out here because I want to be. And so that just changes the way that you're feeling out there. So I, I think, to put it all together, mm-hmm. the highlight videos with the music mm-hmm. combine these different areas to produce more confidence, mm-hmm. even when you can't necessarily get actual experience doing things. Mm-hmm. Law & Order theme song is pretty different. Have you ever heard another one that stood out in your mind? Oh, I don't know. One of my favorite things uh, in baseball is, or it's a pretty common practice, is the seniors get to pick the freshman walk-up songs. And so you you get some funny ones. I think when I was a freshman, I got Benny and the Jets coming up. Okay. That was kind of sweet. Yeah. Um, Let's see. I don't really know. If you'd had one, I feel like it would have come right to mind. So I, Law and Order theme song, that that would stand out in my memory. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to spend a little time talking about what high performer athletes do when film from recent performances isn't the kind that would go into a highlight film. What are some of the techniques that they use to absorb suboptimal performance? Okay, so Bring Them Out by T.I. I remember being an excellent walk-up song uh, for some of my college and high school teammates. Mm-hmm. So just to go back to your other question. Got it. Um, but how do athletes absorb failure, essentially, is the question there, right? How do, how, what do we do when 
what we see on tape isn't what we want to see, mm-hmm. right? And and that question, I think, all comes down to timing, which is it depends when you're thinking about what happened. So if you're still in the game or if you're still competing, you know, this whole video screens and dugouts thing is problematic at this point, but uh, what it was supposed to be being used for was people would go watch their at-bats and then self-assess or essentially adjust mid-game. So what you have to be careful about there is, are, are you going to make too many adjustments? Are you going to try to change your swing in the middle of a game? A lot of people will try to reflect while they're competing, right? which is really unhelpful mm-hmm. because... Not mindful. Not mindful. Uh, you're bringing yourself out of the present moment. Um, but afterwards, I think it comes back to this idea of growth mindset, fixed mindset, how are you approaching watching the tape? Mm-hmm. Are you there to judge yourself? Are you there to berate yourself? Or are you there to learn from what happened? Mm-hmm. So the, the best athletes are, are inevitably the ones that want to, want to go back and watch in a fair way. They're not going to be too intensely judgmental of themselves. They're going to be looking for ways that they can get better in those moments and be excited about making those adjustments mm-hmm. without catastrophizing, jumping to conclusions about, oh, you know, I suck. Wow, this is so embarrassing. You know, usually learning and judgment don't happen in the same brain. So staying away from the judgment and really focusing on learning. We had FDNY captain Michelle Fitzsimmons on the podcast recently, and she said, use a feather, not a stick. Mm, and I, that, like that I, a lot. I used it like several times since I spoke to her. So you just catch yourself and mention that in your mind and it helps. Yeah, I like that a lot. What insight do you have for a tactical athlete who might be dismissive of the process that you're recommending because the consequences of suboptimal performance are potentially more serious in a tactical environment than in an athletic contest? Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying that that in my opinion that only makes it more important, not less important. And I, I guess you could you could approach it from a well, you know there are too many more important things to to spend time on the mental side of it, and uh, I guess sometimes you'll you'll get people talking about well people are just mentally tough or they're not so just get rid of them, but I think that that misses the well it misses what we know about this field which is that people get better when you train them. And so what I would probably say to somebody who actually said that to me is, mm-hmm. okay, don't do it then if it's not important to you. Just watch what happens to the guys that do. Mm-hmm. Let me know when you'd like to start. <laughs> right? Because, I mean, it's, that's what's happened in baseball. It's happening in football now. People want an advantage when they see it. And so I'm rarely one to push this on people because going back to your question about motivational interviewing, it's not what I'm here to do, right? There's plenty of people who want to get better and recognize that this is how you get better. And usually, if you look over and see the guy next to you is all of a sudden outperforming you or getting closer because they're using mindfulness and imagery practices and they're using self-talk and, and that's helping them in those tough situations, you, you come around to it. This is so transferable, even beyond tactical or athletic teams. It could be in corporate settings, even family dynamics. Definitely. And that's one of the things I love most about my job is that it's not actually about the performance necessarily, 
right? That's the applied setting that the mm-hmm. skills are talked about within, but you know, especially in my work with student athletes, mm-hmm. I think a lot about, okay, you know, this is the kind of work that's going to help them be better people mm-hmm. and more successful in whatever they decide to do after sports. I, I hope they're successful in sports, but that's not actually the full purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Right. A hot topic in Major League Baseball at present is the sign-stealing ordeal. So I know that you worked for the Red Sox, but I've got to ask who your favorite MLB team is. The Dodgers grew up in Los Angeles, went to a lot of games in Chavez Ravine. So I've always loved the Dodgers. Okay, makes sense. So I promise not to persuade you to tell us where you stand on the sign-stealing saga as a fan, but it looks like the ordeal has the potential to receive a lot of attention during the course of the upcoming season, which seems like it could also be a distraction for many who are playing and coaching the game. As a professional mental skills coach, what sort of mental process would you advocate for players and coaches and clubhouses if you were working with a team who is in the thick of the saga, the Astros, for instance, and the teams who are arguably impacted in the postseason? So this is going to be one of those things that's much easier said than done, once again, but a true fundamental of sports psychology is controlling what you can control and letting go of the things that you can't. And so I think that applies really well in this situation. You know, if you want to say something about it, if you want to take a stand and communicate through the media about where you're at and what you think, sure, go ahead and do that. But once you do that, you're no longer in control of the situation at all, right? So it's not something that deserves your attention. Our time and our attention are our true limited resources. And so you have to be careful about how much time and attention you're spending on this topic. If your purpose is really to be a great baseball player and a great baseball team, it's going to be a major distraction rather than something that's actually helping you reach your goal. So refocusing on those things that you actually have control of would be a big message that I would come back to about that. That's so important, and I'm really glad that we added this to all the other valuable things you've shared with us in this episode As we start to wrap up, I wanted to ask you a few more personal questions, and this is sort of our rapid fire, so I'm looking for quick, concise answers. Are you okay with this? Yes, I'm okay. All right. So my first question, you've already told us who your favorite MLB team is, but who is your favorite team overall? Same team. Los Doyers. Got it. I also like the Lakers. Okay. Who's your favorite athlete? Kobe Bryant. Who's your favorite coach? John Wooden. What is your favorite book? Mm, I think Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. That's one of my favorite books. Mm, Good taste. And what is your favorite movie? Um, uh, I think Wedding Crashers or (laughs) Goodwill Hunting. I'm not sure I could pick between the two of those. We're going back to the beginning. One of these things is not like the other. (laughs) (laughs) They're too different to pick. Well, thank you so much for everything that you shared with us today. Uh, So appreciate your work and everything that you're doing. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This has been really fun.
Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.